0: Hi and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. This episode is a B-side episode, a somewhat shorter interview-based episode which we air in between regular narrative episodes of our show. These B-sides are a place for us to tackle topics which don't really fit the more story-based format of the show, And this week's b-side is somewhat of a Russian matryushka doll, since we'll be talking about b-sides and things that don't really fit with other things. Security b-sides, or simply b-sides, is the name given to a series of events, security conferences, which started in 2009. On their website, B-Sides define themselves as, quote, the first grassroots DIY open security conference in the world, end quote. And in this episode, we'll hear Eliad Kimchi, our producer, talking to Jack Daniel, one of the founders of Security B-Sides, about how B-Sides came to be, from a small and somewhat improvised event in a rented house in Las Vegas to more than 650 events in 50 countries around the world. We'll hear about Jack's unusual origin story as a car mechanic turned security engineer and Security B-Side's origin as a conference that was born out of the needs of the community as opposed to the needs of businesses and organizations. Who knows, it might even encourage you to organize your own local get-together, whether as a security b-sides event or something completely different. As a side note, you'll hear Jack mention H.D. Moore, who took part in one of the earliest b-sides events. Moore, in case you haven't heard the name yet, is the creator of the Metasploit framework and is one of the most well-known white-hat hackers around. Moore is a great example of the kind of success stories that can grow from a security-based event, such as Security Besets. That's it for me. Enjoy the interview.
1: Jack, I'd like to ask you, I know that there's a lot of people who know you and, and almost see you as a legendary figure, but would you mind telling our listeners who you are? and maybe a little bit about where you started, where you came from. Yeah, so uh, the important thing is that I
2: haven't been at this as long as my age would uh, make people think. Um, I am a displaced auto mechanic. Um, The the really short version of this is uh, many years ago, I uh, was very good at um, diagnostics and repairing the difficult, ugly things, especially in the early days of computers and cars. And because I did uh, that, I tended to um, really hone my diagnostic skills. And I also worked on some pretty strange things um, and had some strange problems and had to be able to find my own parts. And one day there was nobody in the parts department at the dealership I worked at. And I ended up having to find my own parts. And the next thing I know, they've made me the parts manager. And that was uh, in the auto industry, at least here in the U.S. The first uh, department to be computerized was obviously accounting because money matters. And the second one was the parts department because of inventory management. And uh, very quickly, um, I ended up taking care of the computer systems because I had an aptitude for it. And somewhere in the Uh mid-90s, it Got to the point where the dealerships were so computerized that that was all I was doing. They said, instead of paying consultants, why don't you just do this? So I became the system network admin, all in one, you know, generic IT guy. And if you were doing IT in those days, you learned about security, whether you wanted to or not. (laughs) So I learned about security. I thought it was kind of cool. I I got on the, uh, the Microsoft certification treadmill. I had no budget, so I had to learn on my own, uh, and I discovered the user group community in the Boston area, first in Providence and then in Boston, and uh, it was an amazing group. I learned a lot, uh, and in the uh, certification process and teaching particularly, I learned um a lot of stuff. And I just started sharing it and it'd be, you know, a few tips and tricks. And then it was a short presentation. Then I was doing longer presentations and uh, becoming advisors or board members to these groups. And I always felt that, you know, I, I learned so much from the people that came before me that shared that were willing to share, take me under their wings and not treat me like an idiot when I did idiot things, which we all do. And I uh, thought that was fantastic. And I've continued that uh, going forward. I started going to more and more conferences. And uh, there we go. And so here I am today. I've been at Tenable almost a decade now. And um, I do things like support uh, security b-sides I have projects uh, this shoulders of vento sec uh, history project I do some career studies stuff I've been poking at the topics of stress and burnout and survival skills and f- for people in our field for uh, over a decade too and uh, it's it's awesome and I'm in a, a great place and I um am an, a cranky old man but I am still uh, occasionally optimistic and even when i'm not i am uh, eager to support the people uh, who still are optimistic
1: i think a lot of people maybe know b-sites today all over the world and some of our listeners might have attended but i think um could you tell us a little bit more maybe about the origins of b-sites it was um over 10 years ago
2: yeah we go back to 2007 and uh Various groups, the CitySec meetup groups that I think came out of Matasano Ideas, but anyway, they were happening around the US and a few other regular meetups. And in those meetups, it turned out a few of us were on Twitter and had jumped on Twitter and we were uh, staying in touch. So Chris Hoff and Zach Lanier and some others in the Boston area and I would, you know, kind of touch base occasionally on Twitter and uh we all started following each other and that was the original informal sec twits list, security twits list. And that grew and grew and grew the early
1: days of Twitter.
2: Yeah. Early days of Twitter. What that did was it allowed us to have uh, an online community. It was before Twitter was full of, Journalists, celebrities, and <clears throat> politicians. Um, <laughs> and we had arguments, but it was a lot more civilized and uh, society was less polarized. But what happened is it allowed those of us that saw each other once or twice a year to, you know, kind of have a, a, a very light connection, but a connection throughout the year. Um, mm-hmm. In 2009, There had been some ongoing conversations over about the frustration of the size and commercialization and impersonal nature of some conferences. You know, it's it's the curse of success. The bottom line is that the big conferences tend to get way too many submissions. They get way too many. They can't take them all. They turn down a lot of great content. Um, They also have specific audiences and not all content is for all audiences. We saw a group of, the, of talks that were like, that's really interesting, but there are probably 12 or 15 people really <laughs> interested in this. And if you have to fill rooms with hundreds or even thousands of people, something that is um, interesting to 12 people is not, um, it doesn't make sense. And you know, it's interesting, but you can't take it. And we thought, Hey, it's too bad. There's no place that they could do that. Then we saw a few that were, um, maybe not quite ready for prime time. It's like, that's a really clever idea. That's a really clever hack. That's a brilliant thing, but it's, this is not well thought out. It's not well written up. I I understand why they turned it down, but it's really too bad that, um, there isn't a place for them to share this and get some feedback and turn this into something really cool. And so uh, Chris Nickerson had rented a house. He said, why don't we just give talks in the big room at the house? We got a kitchen and a swimming pool. If you don't like the talk, uh, go grab something to eat or grab a beer or jump in the swimming pool or um, go upstairs or whatever. And so we did it. And uh, based on some other stuff, we got a couple of sponsors that pitched in some money. Um, we had a tip jar people threw money in a bucket to help pay for things or Ran to the grocery store and bought food or beer or whatever, and it just happened. Um, it was very informal, very relaxed. We had a mm-hmm. few hundred people through the house during the two days of talks. The talks were amazing. The, the topics ranged from you know, modern malware evolution, the kind of things that you would expect, to... The HD Moore gave his first talk on Warvox, but it had to be, uh, it was still very raw data. He's very professional. He's an amazing presenter and a brilliant guy, just a wonderful human, too. But he, had, he didn't have time to clean it up enough for the big stage, but he shared it with the people who were really interested. Uh, there was uh, some great political content, uh, geopolitical stuff that was in one talk. Uh, the best attended and most talked about session, uh, Aaron Jacobs did a, put together a panel on gender issues in the industry. And it had uh, women that were still in college, had at least one attorney. I don't remember the whole list, but it had people who were consultants to industry large and small. People whose social and political views uh, were... Uh, across, the, uh, across the spectrum. And it was a very engaged and engaging conversation that uh, was far, far before any of the uh, larger conferences were taking on diversity. And it, it was
1: amazing. Do you think there was something specific about B-sides that created the environment for something like that to come up way ahead of its time?
2: Yeah, it was just that it was open. it was just uh, it was mellow and relaxed and um, uh, if you submitted something it was probably going to get accepted because it was done fairly short notice and so we didn't have a, a really strict vetting process. If it sounded like uh, some folks might be interested, there you go. Um, and you know by the second day there were side conversations happening. And, uh, you know, there were, there were some great stories that came out of that. There were some, uh, you know, the, the air conditioning was inadequate. So if you see pictures of that first year, the windows all have garbage bags taped over them to block the sunlight. We were on the roof with tarps to cover the sun, the skylight, because, um, the AC couldn't keep up. We had portable AC units, which were loud and nearly burned the house down. It was it was a wild time, but we were just trying to do this one thing. And we one thing we did do is we did um, have the local shuttle bus company run shuttles back and forth to the other conference that was running so that people didn't have to get in a cab, didn't have to find it. Uh, it did take a while to get back and forth, but
1: you know we made it easy to get to and we we were just mellow about it. A bit earlier, you mentioned the concept of sharing. Yeah. And uh, this is something that is very yeah. common in the uh, security industry. Right. The idea of sharing from bulletin boards to just even the early days of Twitter that you uh, mentioned just now. Was this something that you think was present in the DNA of b sides? Are there any memorable talks that, that you feel Represent that mindset. One, and I'll be careful
2: here because they are still in a similar situation. One of the first talks on at the first ever B sides was one on a network, on a general field of network security topic, um, and the person that gave the talk spoke uh, from their experience as a consultant and reseller um, with a diverse portfolio of customers and products. And uh, they asked us that there be no press. And uh, halfway in, they asked that the camera get turned off and no one do anything. And what they did was they... Name names. They said, if you have, uh, if your, you know, primary core network is this, uh, company and you bring this product in, they're both going to blame the other one for the failure. Here's how to fix it. Uh, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. That was a very practical one. And they named names. They can't do it publicly. You can't come out. If you're, uh, you know, pick your giant network vendor, if you're a Cisco or Juniper or HP or whatever, uh, reseller you come out, you can't come out and say support's going to lie to you unless you can make eye contact with everyone in the room and make sure there are no cameras and no press badges. Not that we had press badges in those days. Uh, there were also things that were um, politically subversive. Uh, there were talks about discovering z- the zero day vulnerabilities and trying to get them fixed and, the battles of trying to work with them. There were people that named companies that were horrible to work with at the time. And it was, it was really candid that candor made a huge difference uh, in, in some narrow spaces. But the fact that anything that made sense that if people in our communities were interested in it, you could discuss it was a big deal. And the fact that from that first event uh, in Las Vegas always had the option of no press, no recording, no cameras, that got formalized within a couple of years to the underground track where, you know, no press, no recording, no cameras, period. Um, But that ability to be off the record and candid um, is, has been interesting as well.
1: Were there any other talks that you remember fondly from, from those days that, that really kind of stay with you or stand out The one that I mentioned, the the, uh,
2: gender issues panel, was pivotal because that sparked the second uh, one at the B sides in San Francisco uh, six eight months later, Um, and that got a lot of attention because people weren't talking about it, and it wasn't um, it was not yet politicized. That was long before Me Too. That was uh, just a just a group of brilliant people um, discussing the the issues. Uh, there were early talks on things like, uh, what compliance was doing as compliance, particularly PCI. I was involved in some of those, you know, what, what happens with PCI? Um, some that I was involved in were also the stress and burnout, the early stuff on stress and burnout, which needed to be somewhere where there was no recording Um, I think we made an exception for press, but no pictures, no quotes, you know, kind of Chatham house rules stuff where, uh, the ideas could be, but it it allowed people to really open up about, uh, stress and mental illness and be exceedingly candid about what they were doing and how they were coping in the battles they had fought on the other side, on the really technical stuff, there were people, uh, that did uh, incredible, just crazy code walks, they would, you know, there were people that uh, just shared their terminal and walked through um, creating and deploying something, there were people that were doing incredibly um, fun, crazy ways to hack things and break things, and they were walking through it. And the, the folks that uh, that were doing that were, you know, just sharing absolute cutting edge techniques in a group of friends and if you happen to sit in on it you you got to see it there were uh discussions of entrepreneurship and other things that became interesting i mean there was an entrepreneur panel with uh, um rob graham and paul judge and and you know that was at atlanta there were just some of these like wait a minute we had we had who on stage doing what
0: uh (laughs) If you're a defender fighting cyber attackers, you must be successful every time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere.
1: Does it ever feel like an experiment? Do you provide sort of the the fertile ground and you just you never know what you're going to get? Some of those early
2: years certainly did... Um, and they were in fun and funky places. And one of the things that's been really fun is to watch the newer events, the smaller events, because I tend to be involved in some of the larger events, but uh, the ones where you get 20, 30 people together in an area that's doesn't get a conference or doesn't get a conference. That's not all about sales. Um, People feel very free to have open and candid conversations. And whether or not they're around the talks, uh, those open and candid conversations um, build networks, they build communities, they strengthen communities, they advance careers, um, they move people forward individually. And uh, when it works well, they move us as a community and as an industry uh, forward. You know, when these started taking off after that first one, people wanted more. So we said, well, why don't we do one around the time of RSA? Um, but uh, some folks made one happen even before that in Mountain View, California. That evolved into a different type of conference, but that was cool. We gave a kickstart to that. Then we did one during RSA, and then we did one in Austin, Texas. And then we did uh, a few of us worked with the crew from uh, Source Boston and made one happen the weekend after Source Boston in 2010. There was one in Denver and then it was a year later and we were back in Las Vegas and we were wondering what we had done and if it was going to keep going. And I don't have the numbers in front of me because they're too fluid unless I'm staring at the spreadsheet. I can't tell you how many there have been, but we've been there have been B-sides events, well over 650 events in
1: over 150 cities in over 50 countries around the world. You mentioned community before, and this is something clearly you're passionate about with all of these B-Sides events going worldwide, how do you think that has affected the community? So B-Sides has connected a lot of people around the world. And I think
2: the most important thing it's done is connect people locally. Um, There are a couple of things that I think are profound that B-Sides has done. We have gone out of our way to make B-Sides approachable to everyone. And that means that the barrier to entry to running a conference is very low. It's easy to put together a conference. Uh, The rules are pretty simple. Um, It starts with having a conversation with somebody uh, for the past few years, that's me. Um, You agree to the ethos, you make sure you understand the history, and then we give you some moral support, but there aren't a lot of rules and you're on your own. You run the event the way you run the event. And the event should reflect the organizing team and the local community. And when they do that, it works well. And you get some people together, you share some knowledge, uh, make some connections, uh, have some fun, and there you go. We're done. Um, You'll note I didn't say anything about how many people or whether you have cool badges or parties or any of that stuff. You get some people together, share some information, start some conversation. Um, That's cool. And it has made it easier for people to put conferences in places where they haven't been before or where they only have really commercial events or prohibitively expensive events. It has made it easier to attend a conference by having them scattered around the world. It has made it easier to speak at a conference and hone your skills at presentation, public speaking. Even if you don't want to do it, the ability to communicate well is critical. We'll put you with somebody they'll work with you, the work on content, the work on delivery, and they, um, in the before times, they would sit there in the front row and be your your supporter and mentor as you gave your your talk. And then the talk was recorded and streamed and you could look at it and cringe because even those of us who speak regularly look at our talks and cringe. Uh, so, but it, was, it really helped build people. So it made it easier for everybody to do things. And it's not... I, I won't name them, but they're conference series and conferences through larger or more structured organizations that have a set of rules. And it makes sense. If you're doing brand protection, you should do that. B-sides really are much more relaxed. Um, we expect you to respect the, the brand, for lack of a better word, but it's more about respecting the community. Respect your yeah. community, respect the field that we're in both the hacker communities, as well as the professional communities, the hacker hobbyists, uh, the professionals, uh, the global community, um, you know, it's, uh, the overarching rule is be good too and to, and be good for your community. It's amazing when people say, I would like to do an event. I was surprised when it reached Myanmar. I was surprised when it reached Indonesia. Um, there are people working on bringing events to Pakistan. There are people uh, contemplating bringing events to um, grossly underserved areas um, in the, the Middle East, in Africa, uh, in Asia, in um, You know, we we got a, last year I got an inquiry and uh, started the process of talking to someone about doing an event in um, Kathmandu. I mean, (laughs) wow! (laughs) (laughs) right. You know, um, I've learned more about geography than I did since middle school. Uh, Just like, wait, where is that in relation to what? That's, oh, that's in, you know. That's in Telangana province. Uh, oh, that, that corner of India. Um, you know, it's like, where does this fit in there?
1: Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it, it's been wild. So as an optimistic curmudgeon, as you referred to yourself, I want to appeal to your optimistic side and ask, what is the legacy of B-sides? What does the future hold for b sites? legacy is really hard to see from inside.
2: Um, I am too involved in it. Um, I get way too much credit for B sides. It takes, it has taken tens of thousands of people around the globe to make B sides what it is. I'm uh, a vocal cheerleader, sponsor, mentor, um, occasionally tour mentor to the B sides community because it's an amazing group of people that I'm honored to have been able to um, help in some way. I think that the legacy will be to build and strengthen communities around the globe. And I, I like to think that in these times, and even though we see it in our communities, the polarization... Uh, The social and political polarization, which is a destructive force in our lives, almost uh, everywhere in the world. Um, I like to think that we overcome that to a certain extent within the B-Sides family and not just the B-Sides family, the hacker family. Uh, You know, DEFCON uh, has done this in its own way for even longer uh, but I think that we connect people, and that's that's critically important. Is connecting people uh, one at a time, and I think that that's the hopefully that's the legacy is building connections uh, and building networks of connections. I think it's going to continue to grow. Um, there's a, there's an ongoing conversation within the the organizers about what's the future, how formal or un- informal it should be. We've been very lucky that uh, we've had very little difficulty. There's certainly been some less than perfect events and less than perfect responses to problems, but they're rare and uh, people tend to understand that the vast majority of people are doing this well. And so I would like the future to be, you know, more of the same. I will be really optimistic and say that as the pandemic recedes and things return or as things settle, I won't say return to normal as things settle into the new normal. I hope that, um, before all the travel restrictions are lifted, local communities get together and have their own B sides in person in a safe manner for themselves. And with that little bit of insulation from the outside world, really strengthen the local communities and give those a boost as we come back out and reconnect in person and then as uh, as things progress uh, those connections expand those network connections back out and um you know forgive a little bit of idealism from a you know curmudgeonly old man but um maybe those sort of connections can help us combat the the divides that we have uh, at least within our own communities Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for this great interview. Thank you for this very positive message and thank you for everything you're doing, um, for the community. And actually there's one more thing that you're doing It's called, uh, shoulders of InfoSec. Would you like to say something about that?
2: Yeah. It's, uh, the shoulders of InfoSec project is something I started several years ago. Um, I gave the first talk at DerbyCon and what happened was I, came up with this idea that I realized I came into the industry um, in my middle age and didn't know a lot about the history and started thinking about it. And I thought, you know what, I'll do a presentation on some of the historical figures in our field. And then I started digging, and it turns out that that's not one presentation. So there's an ugly wiki, um, as all wikis that have actual data in them. It's at uh, shouldersofinfosec.org. It redirects to a PBWorks wiki that's gross and ugly, but it's got, I don't know, a couple hundred people in it. And um, I'm continuously adding people and adding stories, and I've done some presentations, and I've got another one that I'm going to do um, next week. And I try to tell some of the stories of the people in our field, the people that came before uh, good guys and bad guys. I've tried to largely steer clear of hacker history. Cause I think that that somebody that's part of that community should do it, but there's certainly overlap. Um, and I've got us up to, I'm at the teetering point where that, that generation that founded um, a lot of the network security field, uh, people like Ron Gula and Marty Rash and, uh, uh, Rob Graham and others need to go in there and then figure out who the next But if folks like the foundational figures, the people that came out of um, came out of military uh, crypto and intelligence and other stuff are there through the people that did the foundational work in military and government through the beginnings of our industry. And the, the important thing that I try to get through there is that these are actual people. Um, Diffie Hellman is not just a way to securely exchange crypto keys in an untrusted environment. Diffie and Hellman are actually really brilliant, amazingly interesting people. And also they wouldn't have done what they did without Ralph Merkel. And unless you're a crypto nerd, you probably don't know Merkel. So I try to tell these stories and talk about things like Ron Rivest. We know RSA, you know, Ron created something called the three ballot voting system, which can be done electronically or on paper many, many years ago through it in the public domain. Cause he thought that uh, election integrity was really important. Imagine that, you know? <laughs> so these people have stories to tell. And I try to tell little tiny bits of their stories in that project.
1: That is really cool. Uh, as you know, we are all about the history of uh, Infosec, and so I am sure that our audience would appreciate that. So, thank you for sharing. Well, thank uh, thank you. you for coming on and and talking to us and to our audience. And thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much.
0: TK music. TK music.